Our scripture is Matthew 16, verses 13 through 23, a couple of verses longer than what is indicated in the bulletin. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. This is the word of the Lord. Over the summer, many of you know that I've been preaching sermons that focused on characters from the book of Genesis who appear in lectionary texts on or near the Sundays on which I've preached them. Thus, we've heard sermons on Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, and Jacob. There are three more to come this fall, one more on Jacob, then one on Leah, and one on Rachel. But today I want to switch to a different character, a different book, a different testament. I want us to look at Peter. After giving background on Peter, I want to focus on a moment in his life in which he came to a turning point in his faith. And I want us especially to look at what did and did not follow from that moment. I hope that many of us will be able to see in the opportunity and responsibility that Peter was given. Opportunity and responsibility that we inherit. And that the resources available to Peter are available to us. Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, come kindle the flame of sacred love in these expectant hearts of ours. Amen. Along with Jesus and Paul, Peter is one of the dominant characters in the New Testament. He is the first of the twelve disciples called by Jesus who were modeled after the twelve tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. Peter is present for every major moment and episode in Jesus' ministry. 
the giving of the Sermon on the Mount, the cleansing of a leper followed by the healing of a Roman soldier, two early recipients of Jesus' healing arts from the opposite ends of the social, political, and power spectrum. The unveiling of the parable of the sower, Jesus' first parable with its subsequent explanation. The breaking of the news to Jesus that John the Baptist had been brutally killed. And Jesus walking on water and Peter following with some momentary success. When Jesus faces trial and crucifixion, Peter famously denies any knowledge of Jesus. Three times, in fact, before the cock crows. Yet after the resurrection, Jesus reaches out and rehabilitates Peter and restores him both to the fold of the disciples, but more significantly to leadership of it. As he commissions Peter three times to feed my sheep, counterbalancing the three times that Peter has denied who Jesus is. Peter is present as an interpreter of the bursting forth of the Spirit on the early church at Pentecost. And later, Peter plays a crucial role in the Jerusalem Council. When the church realizes that the promise of God given to Abraham and Sarah of blessed to be a blessing culminates in Christ, leading this early council of Christianity To see that it needs to be open to all the nations of the world. Rather than restricting Christianity to being a sect within Judaism. Had that decision gone the other way. We would likely not be sitting here in a sanctuary worshiping God. So in 275 words you've received a brief history of Peter. I promise not to provide a pop quiz or an essay question following the worship service. But if you want one for advanced placement credit, (laughs) happy to provide it. But what I want to do now is to zero in on that moment when Peter first acknowledges who Jesus is. And then what happens immediately afterwards. Because this is a place I think that we can resonate In our passage, when we meet Peter, he is with the other disciples. At the end of a conversation about who others outside the group of disciples are saying that Peter is, I mean that Jesus is, Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God, Peter says strongly. When Peter says this, he becomes the first disciple individually and personally to say who Jesus is. And Peter's answer is both correct and complete. As Messiah, Jesus is more than a martyred witness like John the Baptist. He is more than a revered prophet like Elijah or Jeremiah. And he is more than the seers and visionaries, the mystics and social revolutionaries, and the numerous other claimants to be Messiah who dotted the religious landscape of the ancient Near East into which Jesus was born and which Peter 
lived. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. When Peter makes this confession, Jesus immediately responds positively. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. This knowledge is so beyond human capacity to search or find on our own that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But it has come only through my Father in heaven. Jesus thus is affirming that faith is not something Peter creates or we create. It is not something even that Peter discovers or we discover. It is not something that Peter fully understands, as we will see, or we fully understand. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, Jesus says. When Jesus then immediately predicts his own suffering and death and resurrection, Peter says with equal force, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus rebukes Peter, pointing to his death and resurrection as being essential to his identity as Messiah. Not even the faith that Peter has been given, nor the correctness of the words with which he has confessed that faith, automatically lead Peter to fully understand the meaning of Jesus Christ as Messiah. It is hard for Peter as it is hard for his contemporaries as it has been hard for us throughout history to think of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as riding on a donkey to Jerusalem, as dying the death of a common criminal, Peter's struggle reveals that when we are given the gift of faith, none of us fully understands the gift. Like Peter, we only have a smidgen of its full truth and beauty and depth. So in light of all this, in light of what Peter didn't seem to realize, we might be surprised that Christ then places Peter in a position of leadership. I tell you, Christ says, you are Peter, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And Jesus then adds, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will never prevail against it. Whether the church is in the moral vanguard of change that God is bringing about in the world, or standing in resistance to such change, Whether it is more corrupt than the society around it or standing against forces of corruption. The church is in the hands of God. And God will not let its essence be destroyed. The church will remain even when the Peters of the world, of his world and our world, don't fully understand the meaning of the words we say. Or when we fail, individually or collectively, to live them out. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And this gets us to the final scene. Jesus says to Peter, 
I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you, the church, bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you, the church, loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing are rabbinical terms for forbidding and permitting. According to the Jewish encyclopedia, the power of binding and loosing was also claimed by the Jewish religious leaders of the day who used it to become the administrators of all public affairs so as to be empowered to banish and readmit whom they pleased. The various schools within Judaism had the power to bind and to loose. That is to forbid and permit a power that many religious traditions and churches take and exercise today. This power and authority, they believed, received its ratification and final sanctions from the celestial court of justice in heaven. Now we Protestants who come after the Reformation and who inherit the Enlightenment generally shrink back from the idea that the church as a body would have that much power. We are much closer to God alone as Lord of the conscience. And instead of viewing the church as that force which binds or looses authoritatively what is permitted and what is forbidden, we are much closer to viewing the church as the community in which together we learn the scriptures and the tradition and pray and rely on guidance and support for our own individual decision making. As such, we cannot help but think it's remarkable that Jesus bestows this degree in power, this degree of power and responsibility on any person or institution, but let alone on Peter, whose faith is simply not yet fully developed in understanding the essence of Messiahship, despite the correctness of his words. And we also notice, if you really look closely at this text, that it is equally remarkable how non specific the power Jesus gives the church is concerning what it binds and what it permits or forbids. In fact, I believe it is this very lack of specificity that can be inspiring and empowering to us in this action of Christ. Jesus is investing the community of faithful people, the church, with the responsibility and the opportunity to decide how to embody and live out the will of God as best we understand it 
in the time and the place and the situations in which we live. The only other time Jesus uses the phrase binding and loosing and the only other time it appears in the New Testament is two chapters later. In a chapter on how much do I forgive my brother or sister. In this chapter, in the context of talking about binding and loosing, Jesus promises that where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there among us. Now, a little secret about the church, we love that verse if we work in the church. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there he is with us. I mean, we love that when you plan an event and only two or three people show up. <laughs> it, it is the best consolation prize verse in all of Scripture. But that's not what he's talking about. It's not a consolation prize. What Jesus is saying is, I am with you, church. I am with you, friends of faith. I am with you, families, as you determine to the best of your ability what God is willing you to do. I am with you in your collective and in your individual moral discernment. What this means for us is that when we are facing a personal or moral issue, we need a small cadre of people. Remember, there are only 12 disciples, and that's probably too many to help you work out your deepest moral struggles. But we need a small cadre of people whose faith and life we trust so that they can be the community to which we turn concerning such important matters, even when what we are wrestling with and sharing with them is deeply personal. Such people can be the church for us. This is the power Christ gives the church, not so much as a congregation or a denomination, but as a small group of trusted, faithful people within our congregation or beyond it. People to whom we can turn. And when we do turn to them, the promise is, I, Christ, will be with you. When those decisions are made on earth, they can be accepted, ratified, bound, and even celebrated in heaven. Though obviously, at the end of the day, that is God's choice and decision. And what we learn together among those we love and trust, we pass on to others. Maggie and I often come back from the small island to which we travel each summer in Maine with a story 
I wasn't sure I had one this year, even though someone specifically requested it. But writing the sermon yesterday, one actually came to me. I realize I do have a story. The island to which we go, called Swan's Island, has only 300 residents. It has had, in recent weeks, over the summer, three significant deaths. A tall, slender, weather-beaten man whose obvious speech and learning disabilities with obvious speech and learning disabilities, who for years has read the scripture every Sunday at the small church where we worship. And he has often cited, recited the 23rd Psalm from memory. A longtime ferry worker and landowner who shared with his wife the care of their adult daughter with a significant disability. And whose wife runs a vegetable patch, paints houses, mows lots on the island and is an omnipresent force of nature at every community event. An equally omnipresent community leader who volunteers at the Oddfellow Hall, pancake breakfast, the library, the post office, and serves on the board of select men, still their official name, though women are elected as well. In our brief six days there this year, just a week ago, we heard stories of what these individuals meant to the community, of what they had learned from growing up and spending most of their life on the island and then returning to it after military service or other short stints away. And perhaps most important of all, we learned what others learned from them. When I returned to the office this past Tuesday morning, I was reminded or learned of several recent deaths in our congregation. Longtime members Don Marks and Duffy Gray, as well as family members of some of our number who have lost people recently. A father in Ohio, a sister in Kansas, an aunt in Wisconsin, a brother in Oregon, another father in Alexandria. All were people whom members of our church praised as influences on their lives for what was represented in almost all cases more than 90 years of the people who had passed away. In talking with one of these who had lost a father, I was moved to say, I have watched you be a father for nine years, and you have been terrific. And in the past six months, I have watched you be an equally terrific son to your father. Then I said, I don't know what kind of spouse you are. (laughs) And I have mixed feelings about your record coaching the church softball team. (laughs) But you certainly have gotten two out of four things right. As you have been a great father to your daughter, you have been a great son to your father. He then simply said, we teach what we learn. We teach 
what we learn. I hope that each of you have someone from whom you learn. Someone in your family. Someone among your trusted friends or mentors within your community of faith. Within this church. And rest assured that as you learn, Christ is with you. Not just as a consolation prize. And what you learn is more often than not bound beautifully in heaven. Amen.